0: Friends, if you would turn in your copy of scripture to Titus chapter one, we've got this week and then two more weeks in what are called the pastoral epistles. We've been throughout this season of ordinary time looking at first and second Timothy, and now we are in the letter to Titus from the apostle Paul. So if you would turn in your copy of scripture, uh, and if you don't have your own copy of scripture, then you can feel free to use the pew Bible in front of you. One of the uh, winningest college basketball coaches in history is a guy named John Wooden. And John Wooden taught, or he coached at UCLA, and, and uh, many of his seniors were aware of how he led every single season. He would give the same speech at the first meeting, at the first practice of every season. All the seniors had gotten used to the story. Uh, but can you imagine a freshman Getting in on that first practice and expecting John Wooden, one of the greatest coaches in that period of time, giving a rousing speech of how they need to leave it all out on the court. And you know that they had been winning championship after championship and they needed to pour it out. Imagine as the freshmen sat down in that locker room and John Wooden gave his first speech, his first rabble rousing call. To be all that God had called them to be. I don't know if he said that or not. God called them to be, but you, know, you get the picture. They, they can just sit there with anticipation. You know what John Wooden did every single basketball season? He was one of the winningest coaches. He would take a shoe and he would take a sock. And he would say, this gentleman is how you put your socks and shoes on. And I, I, was, I was tempted to come up here and bare feet, but I thought that might shock you a little too much. But I wanted you to get, yeah, thanks John. Yeah, you would, you would get in your mind like, whoa, this is what he did. He, he said, this is a sock and this is a shoe. And you're like, yeah, we know that. Come on, tell us, what, tell us what the secret sauce is here at UCLA. And he said this, he said, the most important part of your equipment is your shoes and socks. You play on, hard, on a hard floor. So you must have shoes that fit right. And you must not permit your socks to have wrinkles around the little toe where you generally get blisters or around the heels. Hold up the sock, work it around in that little toe area in the heel area so that there aren't any wrinkles. Smooth it out nice and good. Then hold the sock up while you put the shoe on. And the shoe must be spread apart, not just pulled at the top laces. You you tighten it up snugly by each and every eyelet. And then you tie it, and then you double tie it so it won't come undone. Because I don't want any shoes coming untied during practice or during a game. I don't want that to happen. I'm sure that once I started teaching that many years ago, it did cut down on blisters, it definitely helped. But that's just a little detail that coaches must take advantage of because it's the little details that make the big things come about. I can imagine any, any one of us is looking at our text this morning like, oh, wow, we're going to talk about selecting elders again. We did, didn't we do that a few weeks ago? Yep, we did. But Paul was at pains to say it again to a different person. But you can imagine this is probably not the only time that Timothy heard it a few weeks ago, and this is not the first time that Titus heard it either. But that this was a paramount important, and in fact, this is the basics. This is a sock and a shoe, and it matters when it comes to the church. It's the details that make all the difference. So many churches are concerned about their website and their logo and a myriad of other things they think will make them attractive to the world. And those are important things. I'm not, I'm not denying that. Those, those are important things, but those aren't the fundamental things. Those aren't the foundational things that we need to be concerned about as a church. The foundational bricks to the building of a church are the most important. And a lot of times we get it wrong because we care a lot about looking cool. Looking good on the outside and not doing the hard work of digging down into the foundation and saying, okay, what, what, how are we going to lay this? Because how you lay the foundation determines what the rest of the building will look like. And Paul knew this. Paul would go to all these different cities throughout the Roman Empire and he'd preach the gospel, get stoned sometimes. <laughs> preach the gospel and he'd say, okay, I'm going to set up a church here. And when I set up this church, you can see this in the book of Acts, chapter 20, where he talks to the Ephesians and he he has already identified identified elders. And we're going to be doing that next week. We're going to be identifying another elder, Lord willing. And he sets up these elders for the health of the church. And it's not the most attractive thing that the church does, quite frankly. Right. But getting that right does make the church attractive to a watching world it's not the most attractive thing but it's what makes the church attractive you can have the coolest logo in the world and you can have a group of leaders who are polished and well-spoken and maybe even have the best sneakers on the block but paul gives clear guidelines to ensure that men are selected who will guide the church and model for the church what a life enthralled by god looks like recognizing overseers demonstrates what we value and who we want to be. That's what our passage is about today, and that's what it means to identify overseers for the sake of the church. It it demonstrates to a world what matters to you. What kind of person do you want to be like? So when you look at those who are leading whatever church, if you're visiting with us, If you're looking at the kind of leaders that are in your church, that's who you are modeling your life after, whether you know it or not. And so it's a paramount importance when we identify elders, overseers, I'm using those terms interchangeably, That we get it right. And so if you're taking notes, I got five points this morning, and we're just going to walk through the text together, and I'm going to share that with you. And so um, Paul starts out to Titus in verses one through three. And the first point is this, is that this is for your faith, if you're taking notes. This is for your faith, or for the sake of your faith. Okay, look at verses one through three. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So he starts out by saying, what I'm about ready to write is for the sake of your faith. Maybe like laying out. I spoke about putting out filet mignon on a on a plate yesterday. Somebody said they like New York strip, whatever. But this is the broccoli part of it. <laughs> this is the the uh, the potatoes part that may not be all that great. So Paul says this is though a meal for the sake of your faith. So perk up. Your ear should perk up. If you care about the eternal state of your soul, Paul's saying, then I'm writing this for you, for the sake of your faith, that it might be built up. Then he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Paul is saying how we establish the church, the community of faith, matters. It's of utmost importance. At the very base level, it matters for the sake of your own individual faith. So so forget the corporate side of it, of wanting to be part of a healthy church. Just even think of it on the more uh, individualistic side of it. At the very base level, if you want your faith to flourish, then having... What he's getting ready to say, like he hasn't, he hasn't written anything yet, right? Uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't given what our, our title of our message is, is talking about yet. So your ears ought to be up. This is for your eternal life. This is for the sake of your faith individual, so that you might be built up. And so many people, I will say this, have come to me over the years who have gone to churches that talk the good talk, but they were never cared for. They were never shown what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. They weren't being listened to. They were just a cog in a machine. But they also weren't being rebuked. They weren't being admonished. They weren't being exhorted into living lives that are more Christ-like, that are indeed rich in the life of Jesus. So let me just say this on the foundational level, what we're getting into the rest of these verses is how your church is structured and operates is of the utmost importance for your own faith. And so it would be good to know, especially if you're a member of Redeemer, this is not required um, because it's like reading the instruction manual, which who who does that? (laughs) Instruction manual. What happens when you don't read the instruction manual? You get things that don't work very well or you break them because they start to, you start to use the tools in a way that they weren't intended to be used. So uh, if you're a member of Redeemer, I wanna encourage you to read what we call the church manual. It's, uh, it's not the most exciting reading and yet it's really good to know like, oh, when we install an elder uh, next Sunday that he's going to serve for three years, he can re-up for three years and then he takes a year off. That's, that's good to know. In fact, I get asked those things on various occasions, and so read the church manuals, and in fact, as a professor, I'll say, read the syllabus. All right. It's not the most uh, attractive thing that a student does, but it really matters on test day, and it really matters when push comes to shove, and when there have been times where a student says, hey, uh, Dr. Weirman, I, I, I thought that wasn't due until that day. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> That's what the syllabus says. So. Never mind, you don't have to do that until next week. So in the same way, it's really good to know because I don't have the church manual memorized. Russell doesn't, or do you? you have, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Though Daryl is required to have it memorized for next week. He will recite uh, verbatim next week. So, But that's what you need to understand is that what we're getting, like this is the broccoli. This is the, the fiber, as it were. It's so important for your health for your eternal salvation so it matters because when god calls you he calls you into a family he calls you into a church but then secondly second point is this is that our relationship ought to be familiar not formal the relationship between the overseers the elders of a church and the congregation ought to be familiar and not formal, where do I get that? Look at verse four. He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. The relationship Paul shared with Timothy and Titus is instructive for how we are to view the derivative relationship between elders and the congregation. I don't think this is just between Paul and Timothy. I think he's modeling for us how the relationship between servant leaders and the congregation ought to function. It's significant that Paul, and a lot of times we hear Paul talking about Timothy as though he's his son in the faith. That is not, Timothy is not the only person that Paul called his son in the faith. We see that here in Titus. I think that's significant. I think that is Paul's modus operandi. I think that is his way of being. I think that's his default position, is that I am wanting to have spiritual sons and daughters that I give my life to, that I lay my life down for, So a way of application, I try to be very accessible to the members of this church. In fact, if you're a member, you have my cell phone number. How do you have that? Through Breeze. That's right, that's right, not Febreze. <laughs> Although we do have Febreze, and, anyway. So, but it's through the app, Breeze. You can get my cell phone. It's not private. You don't have to go through a, a, you know, some kind of rigmarole to get to me. In fact, I got texted uh, the other night um, I didn't respond because that's going to be in our next point here in a minute. But but more than that, while I have so many hours in a day, I try to make myself accessible. I prioritize my 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 time so that I can get together for coffee with you. If you text me, if you call me, say Matt, I need some help. I'd like to talk. Yes and Amen. That's what I'm here for. And it may not be tomorrow. Or the next day, maybe a couple weeks out, but I will move around my schedule. And those of you that have had coffee with me, that's my favorite thing to do is to have coffee. Um, you know that to be true. may not be tomorrow. may not be in the next couple of days because I do have a full-time job outside of this uh, part-time job. Right? I will make it happen, and I'm, going, I'm accessible to you. I will find the time. And that's the case with all of our elders here at Redeemer. We don't view ourselves as having arrived at some kind of other plane and where you have to, you know, have have something where you're like gotta have some process that you go through. You can text us whenever. Um, you don't have to treat us with some kind of like your highness or your majesty or yes. You know, that's not the relationship that we ought to have. It ought to be familiar and not formal. Too many times, leaders. Even of churches, yes, and even especially of churches, can put on the air of pride that with their congregants, that they have to go through certain protocols, they have to give them certain titles and certain formalities of relating to them. And so let me just say this if you're visiting with us. Please don't become a member of a church where none of the elders know you. It's of utmost importance that you are known by those who are called the shepherds and overseers of your soul. That's the role of an overseer, is to be familiar. Family is where the word family, to be familiar, and not formal. But then thirdly, is that when identifying overseers, you ought to take into account their private integrity. It's our third point, private integrity. And you see this in verses five through six. Let me read that. Oh, I didn't even read this. the second half of verse four says, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Just so you know. Uh, verse five, Paul says this to Titus He says, This is why I left you in Crete. So, so notice the connection, right? The connection between what Paul says is of eternal salvation, eternal life, and which accords with godliness, the knowledge of the truth for the sake of the, the faith of God's elect. This is why he left him in Crete. For all those things that he says in verses 1 through 3, he says, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I will say this, that nobody's home is perfect. You should have heard our home last night. Nobody's home is perfect. Because, but, but what Paul is calling Titus to recognize is that the home does matter. The private lives of your leaders matter because it is a microcosm for how we operate in the world. The home is a place to consider the metal of the servants in the church. And we heard this, and I already mentioned this a moment ago, but it bears mentioning again from 1 Timothy chapter three, and I'd encourage you to go look at 1 Timothy chapter three in conjunction with Titus one, but let me just read the, the first few verses of chapter three of First Timothy just by way of reminder. And you'll notice that a lot of these characteristics line up with what Titus is saying here. He says, an overseer or an elder, right? You can use those terms interchangeably, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household how will he care for God's church so i want to tease out two uh, particular notes and then three overarching notes so the first two particular notes that you may find interesting and that have been debated and just where we are as at a, uh, where we are at as a church is the husband of one wife merely means a one woman man it just means that this person it doesn't mean that a let me just be really clear. doesn't mean that someone who is divorced, biblically, and we could get into all, what all that means, can't serve as an elder in the church. It means that the person, the woman that he's married to, he's faithful to, that he's not a philanderer, that he's not going out and being polyamorous, some of the popular words that are going around in our culture right now. But he is dedicated and he is focused on loving his wife as Christ loves the church. So let me just say clear, that means that someone who is divorced is not de facto disqualified to be an elder. That's a conversation for another day and another time. But he needs to be faithful to his wife. And then secondly, children of believers. So you you see that here, that uh, they need to be Believers, that his children are believers. Another way to translate that, though, is that they should be faithful. So that doesn't mean that it, at some point, if one of my children, uh, God forbid, decides to walk away from the faith, that, that disqualifies me as an elder or anybody else, if their children walk away from the faith, but that they are faithful. They are to be, quite frankly, and real generally speaking here, they are to be respectable and reflect a healthy love of their fathers. They may not agree with everything their daddy does, but they need to love him, right? Because that is an overflow of that familial relationship that ought to be reflected in the church that we just saw. They ought to be, in other words, so well-taught at home that they know what they are turning away from. They ought to be so well-taught at home what the gospel is, that they are without a doubt knowing what they are turning away from. That's what Paul is pressing upon, that they are faithful, that they know, yep, I don't believe that. I know exactly what I don't believe. I don't believe, but he's saying that it's better, obviously, <laughs> that they understand and that they believe that, but that doesn't reflect necessarily on the Father. Then three overarching notes that I want to share with you with you first is that these Characteristics do not mean that an elder needs to be perfect. That's antithetical to what we preach every Sunday, is that none of us is perfect. It does mean, though, that there needs to be evidence of these qualities in their life. Doesn't mean they need to be perfect, but there needs to be evidence of these qualities in their life. So, for any young man who desires to be an elder, you need this is basically your calling card. This is your your, uh, your job description, these qualities need to be evident in your life. Secondly, I've seen and heard many pastors whose families suffered because the man didn't have his priorities right. His priorities are his character qualities, not what he does, but who he is. That's of paramount importance. I don't care if you can preach your socks off. I don't care if you can preach other people's socks off. It's not about what you do, it's who you are on the inside. It's the character qualities that Paul is listening. You need to be able to teach, but the rest of this is all about being humble, and kind, and good, and gentle, and loving, and Christ-like. Because they didn't have their priorities right, they prioritized the church over the home. And over time, disqualified themselves by being someone who is not able to keep his house in order. So the elder, the second note that I'm noting here is that he should prioritize the home over the church. If, if, I, if I lay down my life for the church and my family suffers as a result, like all the time, there are times that the Lord calls our church, our, our, our family to say, hey, you know what? Daddy's got to be at this meeting. And that, that's, that's a one-off or that's a, you know, not all the time. But if that becomes a habit in my life, then you ought to reprimand me. You ought to reprimand any leader who puts the church and sacrifices his family for the sake of the church. That's not what you're called to do as an elder, particularly of this church, but then of the church in general. And then thirdly, subsequently, because that's true, the church ought not to expect the pastors to be at the beck and call of the congregation. I've heard many folks in other churches, not this church, that uh, are so upset that the pastor didn't leave his vacation with his family to come visit them in the hospital. That happens. That's a real thing. And uh, that ought not to happen. That um, the congregation ought to appreciate that these Qualities need to be nurtured and cared for in the life of their leaders at the church. But that also means that the, sometimes the family of the pastor, of the elder, of the overseer needs to know that there will be times and seasons where sacrifice is needed. So our private lives, whether whether we'd like them to be or not, as it relates to the job description for an elder of the church, our private lives are not off limits in consideration because our private lives will always bleed over into our public life. Always. Always. It may just be maybe a day, maybe a year, maybe a few years, but they will always do that. And that will bring shame upon the church. And we've seen that time and time and time again, haven't we, over the last five to seven years. So that leads us into our fourth point. Not only the third point of our private integrity, but then fourthly, our public relations. So how I treat my family in the home will always reflect how I treat those outside of the walls of my home. And this is in verses seven and nine. While we may not know what always goes on behind, behind closed doors, we can see that a prospective elder ought to be respected by outsiders. Paul frames this by negative qualities that he ought not to have. In verse seven, look at verse seven. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. And then he gives the positive qualities. These are the things he ought not to be, and then these are the things that he ought to be. Verse 8. He, but he should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So he ought to exhibit compassion and goodness and kindness, namely the fruit of the Spirit. So he should have compassion, but he should also have content to what he says. A prospective elder should be able to teach the good news. Look at verse 9. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So all of these character qualities are of utmost importance because there is a content part too, right? There comes a time where God calls his servants to rebuke people who contradict what is being taught in the faith. It's an unsavory part of the job description, but you have to get the first part right. Why? Because this is fifth and finally what we, we can call humble Confidence. We ought to have a humble confidence in our posture as elders and as overseers in the church. Look at verses ten through sixteen. I'll just read that whole paragraph there. For he said, so he says, they ought to be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, also to rebuke those who contradictory. For this is the why. He's given us the reason why they need to be able to teach. For there are many who are insubordinate. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound or healthy in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's of utmost importance that an elder have the character qualities outlined in the previous verses because, because his work is to admonish, to rebuke, and to exhort according to God's word. And if you give an unsavory word, it helps a whole lot if you're a nice person. If you exhibit to people that you really do actually care about them, that you are humble and not proud and saying, how could you ever believe that? I'm going to... I'm going to do a TikTok about that. I'm going to give my hot take on the latest social media app so that I can down, down, you know, talk down to all those people that would ever believe that. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you need to be a humble person. And sure, you need to go ahead and do your TikTok. <laughs> give your content or whatever it is. Right? Speak the truth, but do so in a posture of saying, hey, this is, this is what God says. This is for your own good. This is for your health. This is for your life. Because our world is increasingly antagonistic to the gospel message, to the Christian message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. In today's climate, it's typical for people to talk down to those who disagree with them or call them Satanists or call them compromisers of the truth or what have you. But we are called as God's people and particularly as elders and overseers in Christ's church to wade into those uncomfortable and turbulent waters. There need to be, and I just got this book this week and started reading it uh, by these guys, Benno Van de Torren and Kang Sang Tan. He's a, he's a Vietnamese and, and Dutch fellow. Wrote this book called Humble Confidence. And uh, they argue that because of the prevalent cultural relativism, that hey, what's good for you is good for you, man. But don't don't tell me what I ought to believe. The cultural relativism we currently find ourselves in, the integration of how we live, the truths of what we believe, actually is what needs to commend truths. Let me say that again. So let me, let me put it this way, in, in the form of a question: Does your faith actually work in real time? Does your faith actually work? Your faith, right? So I've already talked about this is what elders need to be. Well, when you recognize elders, that's what your life ought to also be in the modeling of that, right? So as all of God's people, the, 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 the extension of that is that you would be modeling and sharing your faith, that you would model what the Christian life, the following Jesus in the way and the truth in life actually looks like and not just being a good apologist, We humbly hold on to absolute truths, but we're not angry about it. It's another way to put it. It's good and right to hold on to absolute truths, but not to be angry about it all the time. We're confident enough in our faith that we don't need to get in a tizzy with when someone disagrees with us. In fact, if we read the Bible, we see that the majority of the world will not agree with us. And we can live in that in a humble confidence. And they, in fact, say this in their book they say, sharing our faith cannot merely design the perfect argument, to which we then add some practical considerations as an afterthought. The witness of our faith should be an embodied witness from the very start, or it is not a good witness to the way, the truth, and the life found in Jesus Christ. It's profound. That people want to see that it really matters, that your faith actually works, that it it matters how you live your life. And that it's not just like some esoteric metaphysical reality that may or may not be true, but does it work? And that's the call that we need to heed this morning, that we need to prioritize the basics because blisters lose gains. We need to do the hard work of recognizing servant leaders who reflect and promote the kind of people that we want to be like, namely Jesus. And we need to model our own lives and how we commend the gospel and teaching and saying, yes, there is truth and this is actually good for you. This is not about me being right. This is about me loving and serving you and saying, yes, God created it this way for your good to realize that God has done this for your good and for life, eternal life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and the responsibility and the joy that it is to do the not so attractive work of recognizing those who would lead our church. And yet at the same time, you have promised us that in being faithful to this, by laying good foundation stones, that our church will be attractive to a watching and waiting world for hope, a world that so desperately needs to know these absolute truths, and yet for us not to be angry about it, but for us to be humbly confident in you, in your ways. And We pray that you would help us to not just ascend to these truths with our minds, but to embrace them with our hearts and with our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.